Hi to all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. I'm really jazzed to bring you today's episode. I swear, it literally came to me Monday morning, sitting in bed, unable to fall back to sleep. Since coming back from my Europe trip, I've been doing some catch-up, and I was worried about whether or not I'd even be able to get an episode up this week. Then a spark of inspiration hit, and I was up 3.30 a.m. Monday morning, typing away. There's a short bonus segment after the credits where Brandon shares some camera info about the History Channel shoot, so be sure to stick around for that. But I'll have an extended 15-minute bonus episode later this week on the podcast feed. It has more technical info about the History Channel shoot and how Whitestone worked with the History Channel and the New York Production Company in order to get it done. However, if you're a Daredreamer FM Premium member, you can download and listen to that bonus segment right now on the blog post for this episode. The link is in the show notes. Remember, as a premium member, you get extra bonus content, special early access to public bonus content, as well as other resources to help you grow in your craft and career, like contract templates, ebooks, and more. Go to daredreamer.fm slash join to learn more. I also want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. This is the story process that helped skyrocket them to worldwide fame. If you go to learnstory.org and use the offer code RADIO, you can save $47 off lifetime access. We thank Muse for their support. Now, on with the show. It was December 2008. It was a cold yet beautiful, brisk Atlanta morning. The weather particularly stands out for me because my family and I had literally just moved to the ATL from Silicon Valley, and all I heard before my move was, oh, you're moving to Hot Atlanta, have fun with all the heat. Well, those people have obviously never been in Atlanta during the winter, because it was freaking cold. Now, albeit by my first summer there, I learned exactly how and why Atlanta got that nickname, Hot Atlanta, and it is a big part of the reason why we're now living in Seattle. Anyway, as I was saying, it was a cold yet beautifully clear day in the ATL, and my family and I were checking out a possible new church to attend. The church we visited that day was 12 Stone. I've always been drawn to contemporary churches that use a lot of media. Movie clips, original short films, flashing lights, etc. I know, big surprise, right? Well, 12 Stone was no different. And churches in the South are known for being big, but 12 Stone was big for even Atlanta standards. It's ginormous. I think at one point it was the fastest growing church in America. As my wife and I got seated in one of the stadium style seats, the lights went down as they were about to premiere their latest short film. Like many contemporary churches, particularly the ones that I've attended, 12 Stone used a lot of movie clips and original shorts as a sort of introduction to the sermons. And I've seen my fair share of such short films over the years. And up to that point, the ones I'd seen were... cute. They were usually some fun or a funny scripted project shot on a consumer camcorder or, or maybe Sony's PD-150 or Panasonic's HVX-100. To the average Jane or John Doe, they were cool, but they wouldn't be anything that would necessarily impress an experienced filmmaker. But on that Sunday morning, my mind was blown. Gentlemen. Warning about 
If your heart is sad No This short film was freaking amazing. The sets and costumes were out of this world. The music was like something out of Broadway. It was pretty much like Phantom of the Opera meets Chris Nolan's The Prestige. It was magical. I whispered to myself, what the f... Now, I didn't actually say it because I was like, you know, in church. But I definitely thought it, and I knew what I had to do. I said to myself, I have got to meet the filmmaker who made this. That filmmaker was none other than Brandon McCormick. And if you've been a listener to this podcast since the beginning, you know that probably only show regulars JD and Yolanda have been on more times than Brandon. His knowledge about film history, his passion for the craft, and the way he so eloquently makes such poignant sound bites is a documentary podcaster's dream. And I'm honored to be able to call him friend. Gentlemen, let me take the stage and teach you a thing or two. If you want to be rid of your disbelief, your sight must be. Well, today on the show, I wanted to give you a more in-depth insight into Mr. McCormick and Whitestone Motion Pictures. Specifically, we'll cover why they do the kind of work they do and how they're able to do it. This whole season of our show has centered around the theme, finding your voice as an artist and developing a signature style. And Brandon's journey as a filmmaker has been a paragon of both of those topics. He's learned a ton over the years as he's found his voice as a filmmaker, and Whitestone has developed a definitive style with their periodic piece, Nostalgic Sensibilities. Brandon will share his personal trials and tribulations as a working filmmaker, the disastrous experience of trying to get their first feature film off the ground, and how they came to the brink of perhaps throwing in the towel, and then the History Channel called. My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School, A Filmmaker's Journey. What a journey Brandon McCormick has been on. The magic of a second's glance. Watch close the smiling children dance. Last summer, when I was literally at the beginning of recording episodes for the first season of Radio Film School, I was out back in Atlanta to shoot some work for clients I still have there. I therefore took that opportunity to meet with Brandon in person at the Whitestone headquarters. It's an old craftsman plantation-style house in Buford, Georgia, about 40 minutes north of Atlanta proper. We started out with how and why they do the kind of work that they do. What was your mindset behind the kind of work you guys wanted to do here and the kind of work that you guys do do here? Um, So first off, you said do-do. And yeah. I can never let that go. Uh, I always have to laugh at that. No, right. um, <laughs> so yeah, at, at Whitestone, it, it's really kind of become a collective of people um, here, specifically in the Atlanta area, but really all over the country that have come in and um, really are self-taught. And I uh, use the word artisan a lot because uh, for me, the difference between an artist and an artisan 
is an artist makes something usually for themselves and an artisan makes something that's useful. Um, hmm. Artisans like bread makers or chairs or, uh, you know, or table makers, woodworkers. Um, and uh, so, you know, kind of the philosophy was that we make things that people want to consume or people want to uh, enjoy, um, so specifically in film. And started out saying we're going to go make feature films and that's it. Um, and really used the short films as kind of like test runs. Mm -hmm. And so each short film was trying something new, trying to figure out something uh, that we didn't know before, um, and uh, which is why they're kind of all over the map if you see the progression of the things we've done. From Wait, in terms of the story or in terms of the... Everything, top to bottom. So, you know, hey, let's try a Southern Gothic musical. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. That one, People like that one. All right, cool. Let's yeah. go do a Hitchcock homage, you know. Um, but one thing that I do see through a lot of your films is uh, retro or history. Mm -hmm. uh, when you think about you think about that's magic. You think about the one about um, the Hammer guy. Yeah, John Henry. John Henry. Henry. Mm -hmm. you think about. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of. I'm, I'm trying to think of one that I've seen since uh, I first met you, and like all the ones that come to mind take place. Either mid 18th or maybe the latest mid 20th century, um, like the Hitchcock one, I would say. Yeah, the latest one I've done. Yeah, Hitchcock's probably the latest. Uh, the one I did for History Channel was 1930s. Was right, the latest. So yeah, I, I don't know why that is. I don't think <laughs> I've, I did one modern film recently called Hold Fast uh, about a plane crash in a swamp. Well, there was that when you did that was all one take. Remember that was in nineteen sixties. Oh, see, even yeah. that one. Okay, so right. That was the latest one. That was about the like... first heart transplant. Right, right, right. right. Um, I don't know. I, you know, for some reason, I've always just. Uh, and by the way, the, my team, whenever I write something like that, they just. I mean, they love it, but they're also like, oh man, because it's a lot harder to shoot in the nineteen thirties yeah. uh, or any period piece. Yeah, because you know you got costumes and you're always hiding the modern day stuff. I don't know. It was, it's just been a thing. Like I think Indiana Jones is cooler in mm -hmm. you know in his time setting than yeah. modern day. And so there's something about the nostalgia of it, something about the the style of it. Um, in the beginning, it was a lot of anachronistic stuff. So mm -hmm. you know, merging you know time and a little bit more. I guess you could call it fantasy or or um, um, I guess some of it was early steampunk back in the day, mm -hmm. back in uh, Heartless and the story of the Tin Man stuff. But um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's something I'm always drawn to, and I, when a story comes to mind, I, I if I place it in a modern day setting, it's just it's just not as exciting to me. Yeah, so really, it's just a personal preference that just becomes kind of a yeah a fun thing. And the only one I did modern was in a, uh, a swamp uh, in January, and it was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> but I told my team whenever because most of the time when I shoot stuff, it's out in the woods or in, you know in horrible places, and they're right. great on camera. And so I just kind of told my team, look, nothing, um, nothing interesting happens in air conditioning. <laughs> so all the stories have to right. happen somewhere hostile or, or whatever. And, you know, the thing about modern day stuff, you can't get lost anymore. Mm -hmm. Cell phones. Like every movie has to deal with cell phones. Like right. beep, beep, out of service, right? Or right. I dropped it, I lost. Like I hate, like cell phones don't work in stories. Like you can't turn down but, the wrong road you know, anymore. It's interesting you bring that up because, and this is a slight tangent, but I think it's an interesting one. I'm fascinated by how much technology changes storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, and even music. I mean, you think about, uh, you know, I think about that song, that, you know, that talks about, you know, putting a, a dime in the, 
in the in the telephone in the public telephone and it's like you don't even have that anymore right Uh, right and but like just the idea of having the smartphones how that changes stories in terms of being able to create stakes or being able to set the stage for something that well you have a cell phone you have a smartphone now you can get lost or or you have to make up some way of where a person doesn't have it. You always have to deal with the cell phone. It's right. like this albatross in storytelling. <laughs> right. Like you just have to, and like there's like a supercut online of like you know it's always the out of service whatever usually. <laughs> uh, but even that's going away. Right. It's like, you know, like <laughs> they can get service wherever now. Uh, yeah. So the modern day, yeah, the modern day stuff it just kind of uh, it takes away a lot of the traditional problems. Yeah. And when you do that, it's just you know, I mean. I, it, there's no confusing information because I can just look it up, you know. So like, yeah, like, yeah we can't even argue about something because in about 30 seconds, I'm gonna get on the phone and prove you wrong, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, so if conflict is everything in storytelling, uh, the you know technology, which I absolutely love, like I'm yeah. not walking around anachronistic. I'm you know I'm wearing a smartwatch and all that garbage. Well, it's it's funny you bring that up. Noah Baumbach's recent movie, um, While We We're Young. Have you seen that one? Um, so it has been Stiller, and uh, he. Um, plays, um, he's you know, part of this couple, and there's this older couple that's like in their mid to late thirties or maybe early forties, and they and they befriend this younger couple who's like in their mid twenties, and they're playing some kind of game where they're trying to, to remember something, mm-hmm. and uh, Ben Stiller's character is going to go to look it up, and the guy says, "No, no, man, don't look it up. Let's let's just try to figure it out." And yeah, and they have this, they even have this montage in the movie. Where the younger, because the younger character are like these hipsters, right? Mm-hmm. The, the younger couple. And there's this montage where they cut back and forth between the older couple and the younger couple. And like the older couple, like Ben Stiller and his wife, they are all, they're like, they're listening to iPads. I mean, iPads, they're iPods, right? Mm-hmm. And they cut to the younger couple and they have LPs. Right. And then they cut right. to, and then they cut to Ben Stiller, and he's running in a gym. And they cut to the older couple, and he's like, and they're the younger couple, and he's like running outside. Right, they were kind of reverting. Right, which is kind of which is interesting because, yeah. like, you would think it'd be the other way around, mm-hmm. like the younger couple having all the neurotechnology. Yeah, but another Atlanta filmmaker that I've had on the show, Isaac Dietz, who does a lot of, um, he, he directs a lot of music videos for like Reach Records and stuff like that. Really um, thoughtful filmmaker. He made this really interesting observation where, like, if you were to ask someone like my age, okay, how would you escape from um, uh, from uh, quicksand? Mm-hmm. Like, we would have an answer to that because when we grew sure, up, right. we saw stories where people got stuck in quicksand. Right. You ask someone twenty years or mid twenties or younger, they probably don't even know what quicksand is because you don't. Because right. if you ask them how how to survive a zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. They can tell you exactly how mm-hmm. to survive. And again, it speaks to that, how technology and like what we deal with nowadays affects storytelling and what, mm-hmm. we, what we see or do. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned earlier like the difference between artist and artisan. I want to go back to that a little bit. Okay. Like, cause, so your definition was like an artisan makes something for other people and an artist makes something for himself or in, herself. In a broad. In a broad. Right, uh, in a broad. Kind of condescending. <clears throat> way uh yeah I yeah because a lot of it was uh you know the word artist has a bit of a connotation or at least in in you know my world it, for a while it was you know an artist or an artiste you know it was mm-hmm. like someone who only writes when the muse strikes and 
all these kind of romanticized things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for us, especially working in a place like uh, the church at Twelve Stone, um, you have to deliver, you have to perform, you have to like, you, have a, you start with a deadline and work your way back. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it, it became something about like, okay, and really also became a lot about creating something um, that was just meant for you to get better and, you know, for an audience. And at the same point, you're practicing. And so like, you know, a bread maker who is considered an artisan, mm-hmm. um, you know, he can make the, a masterpiece piece of bread. But the only way you'll know is to eat it mm-hmm. and consume it. Right. And then it's gone. Like you don't, he doesn't get to put it up on the wall and go, right. look at what I've done. I've made the greatest loaf of bread ever. <laughs> right. um, or, you know, a table maker. It, if it's not being used as a table, then it's worthless. It's yeah. not a, it's nothing. Um, and, and usually they're sold or given away. And there was a time, and I can't remember when, but it was maybe, maybe 60, 70 years ago where storytelling was in the artisan split. It was a split of artisan mm-hmm. and artist. And storytelling before was considered an art, uh, you know, kind of an artisanal skill. And mm-hmm. then it kind of slid over into the artist. Um, I don't know. And I, I, there's something for me anyway that, that is a, a fun thought of, of taking it. Um, you know, the idea of I only write when the muse strikes. And fortunately, the muse strikes every morning at 9 a.m. Like, yeah. I have to, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something I have to do and I love to do. But it's, it's not... It's a little bit demystifying it in some ways, just to make. But at the same point, you know, I I still believe in you know inspiration, the muse, and all that kind of stuff. Right. You still got to do the work. Um, yeah. And you still got to get down and and get into it every day. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things you know I've heard filmmakers say is that when you hear someone like a Kevin Smith, I've heard Kevin Smith say this, where um, like you make the kind of films that you would want to watch, mm-hmm. which seems to fall in the. Uh, wheelhouse of the artist that you were talking about where I mean do you like what, what like what's your commentary on that in terms well, of a filmmaker you know instead of trying to make something that you know someone else is going to like like make the kind of films you would want to watch sure I think that goes more to taste and it goes to style mm-hmm. uh, I would say maybe the artist got, does stuff that like um and part of it comes down to accessibility, which mm-hmm. I struggled with for a long time. So mm-hmm. I would make stuff that if you didn't get it, I didn't care because it was, right. you know, it was for me kind right. of thing. And it was art, it was artistic. Right. Right. Or um, well, now we use the word experimental, which uh-huh. is kind of gibberish stuff, which I thought, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was a lot of it was trying to figure out, okay, what's accessible uh, storytelling and fundamental um, and it means using archetypes and tropes sometimes. And, you mm-hmm. know, and sometimes as artists, you go, oh, I don't want to use... Uh, this trope or this this archetype, but you know what? Father son archetypes really work, and so, and I and I've loved studying the difference between an archetype and a uh, and a kind of a cliche. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess my in my language is more for Kevin Smith is still making things other people want to watch. Yeah, if you you know if you truly want to make something just for yourself, it, it wouldn't have to. And you've seen this stuff. It just doesn't have to really make sense or speak to anybody else. Yeah. Um, so I, I think at the same point, you know, there's style and there's there's yeah. content. And I make weird musicals that some people like and some people don't. So at the same point, uh, uh, you know, that it, that can be considered self-serving at times as well. But I still try to make it accessible knowing that I want other people to enjoy it. Um, it's not just for my own enjoyment. Right, right. Yeah. And, and when I think about like his comment or other filmmakers who comment about that, I think the greater point that they're making is that uh, there are other people out there who have a similar taste as you. Mm-hmm. Like this world is big enough 
that you can make something that you enjoy and there are enough other people right. who have the same, like you said, taste that you have that there'll be a market for it. Absolutely. Or, and, you know, and I've given that advice to people who are looking to start their own business making videos and whatnot. It's like, you know, don't try to be like the next videographer that, or filmmaker that you see. Make something that speaks to you and you'll mm -hmm. find customers and clients who like mm -hmm. that kind of work. So, yeah, absolutely. For sure. So, how did it evolve in terms of, so you were talking about earlier how the kind of production values that you guys put into your works is leading towards you guys being able to do, you know, like feature films and whatnot. Was that, how challenging was that? Like, because you didn't, from my understanding, like you don't have like a formal film school background, no, right? Yeah, no, it's uh, the, uh, yeah, experience, the most right. brutal teacher. Um, <laughs> and lots and lots and lots of bad movies and really rough mistakes. Right. Even if you go to film school, that's part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there's nothing against film school. I just, you know, it just wasn't opportunities for me. And there wasn't, uh, and the same with mentors uh, in the in the film is I've had a lot of great mentors, but specifically in film, I've not I've been fortunate enough. Um, so, and that's really kind of the ethos of Whitestone. So, especially in the beginning, uh, our costume designer, you know, I just, she just wanted to do fashion design at some point. And I just mm -hmm. kind of brought her in. Um, you know, Nick uh, did tons of incredible music and then kind of like bring him in. And, you know, now we're working together very that's closely. That's Nick Kirk, your Nick Kirk, partner. Yeah. Yes, producer. partner at Whitestone now and, uh, uh, you know, composer. Um, and, uh, and, and so really, yeah, that's a lot of it, which is just trying to figure it out and, uh, so we would do way more stuff than necessary um, preparation-wise or, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, crew-wise on our short films that we just push ourselves to just try the next um, level of excellence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we would break down our films and do post-mortems, we still do, where we look at, okay, how long did we um, take to shoot this and how many shots did we get per day, how do we get that up? I mean, things that really traditionally you don't need to do, mm -hmm. um, but we knew we're, you know, we're running time trials. We're trying to get prepared so that when it comes time to, to spend someone else's money in the millions that we can, you know, look at them and say, we can do this. Right. We, we can be responsible with mm -hmm. uh, what's been given to us. Um, so it's been, yeah, that's a lot tougher. I guess we're harder on ourselves than, than, than um, maybe, you know, is healthy sometimes, but, uh. Uh, we, we have a culture definitely of, of just trying to get um, to that next step. And we, we see, I mean, there's nothing against short films. I actually have an uh, absolute passion and love for short films and short form storytelling. But at the same point, uh, you know, it's a great place to experiment because, yeah, if you, if you fail uh, or if it's excruciatingly terrible, like a lot of mine have been, uh, it's only, you know, eight minutes. So, you know, it's endurable. <laughs> Uh, and I don't want to have to learn all of those horrific experiences on a two-hour film. Like goodness, like what, what that 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 horrible visage should haunt every filmmaker of like making the most horrible thing mistake. Like imagine right. your worst short film and then make it two hours long. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> my God, what have I done? What abomination have I created? Um, so there's you know again those are a lot of great places to to make those mistakes and uh, learn from them and always get better. And so really. The only thing we would value at, at Whitestone um, really is improvement. As long as the next thing was we did it better or we improved on something, mm -hmm. I would feel good about the project, no matter how good or bad it, it turned out. Um, and I would never look back with regret. You know, we all look back at our early stuff and go, oh, gosh, and roll our eyes. But at the same point, I, I can look at that stuff and go, you know what? At the time, I gave it everything. We gave it everything we had. So. Mm -hmm. 
while now by my standard it's absolutely embarrassing i don't i don't regret it you know mm-hmm. i can see it for what it was and that's kind of the craftsmanship of saying okay um and i would imagine any i mean that's goes for any artist or artisan you go back to your first stuff and you're like whoa what was i doing yeah. you know but man i was really you know you could see the improvement hopefully you'd see on a trend you know on a, on a graph that it was quality is going up hopefully and I did. I had some areas where it plateaued, and mm-hmm. so I would see two or three films, and my, you know, maybe my scenes or dialogue wasn't getting any better, or my acting um, within the, the sequences was not improving, and that was that to me was a big red flag. Okay, what is going on? Like mm-hmm. to to see that and say, okay, now I got to double down on on you know conflict and scenes or moving a plot forward, or really how to make a scene. Uh, work with um, just dialogue and scene turns, which I did. Right. I did a film which then became just two actors on a bench for 11 minutes in one shot, uh, uh, um, Tiny Little Words, because I needed to practice scene turns and dialogue. So mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, I'm going to strip everything away and take away all my cutesy things like, you know, to cover up mm-hmm. my bad writing of this beautiful shot of really great music. I would try to, you know, pulling in my team to help save my terrible writing um, and say, okay, all right, I got to, I have to perform and fix this and, you know, and then I think we, you know, improved on that and then keep going. And then now that's on the trend curve rise. Okay, good. I feel better about that. All right, let's go. What else are we plateauing? And it's good. And that's why I say make a lot of stuff because that's the only way you can see if you're getting better or not. It's just, it's just to make stuff constantly and have something to compare it against. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How were you guys able like to make short films with that kind of production value? A lot of help. Yeah. Um, you know, we had people that really believed in us. Um, there's a uh, production company um, called Triple Horse mm-hmm. um, that we wor- have worked with for the past uh, maybe five or six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the guy who uh, is in charge of all that um, giant operation, his name is Carl Horseman. Mm-hmm. And he saw what we did in the earlier days and said, look, I just want to help you guys get to the next step. And would, you know, so he would help provide at a great discount gear and expertise mm-hmm. and um, uh, people. And at the same point, you know, we would work, I'd work with kind of raw talent. Um, so hopefully I would, you know, I was looking for people like in the protege program or other areas that had just raw talent, but they didn't know how to really form stuff uh, mm-hmm. or really kind of make it into a discipline. And I would then uh, bring them in and just say, Hey, look, it's messy. And I, I, you know, I don't know a whole lot. And, you don't know a whole lot. Let's figure this thing out together. Yeah. And so that became the kind of, again, the ethos of saying, um, fail once, fail often, don't make the same mistake twice. So mm-hmm. mistakes became a, a, a thing to be celebrated and go, okay, now we know that doesn't work. Uh, even in production or uh, production value and say, oh, wow, that, I have to shoot that differently next time because mm-hmm. it looks terrible. Um, and the production value also hopefully came from just studying the, the master's. Studying uh, and really behind the scenes, I think the uh, same for a lot of filmmakers became film school. So yeah. behind the scenes was like the greatest thing. So right. you know, hats off to Peter Jackson and hats off to even George Lucas, who created these these epically long, <laughs> detailed behind the scenes where we you know I would pause it and be like, what is that dolly? You know what is you know what microphone are they using? And um, oh, that's how they heated that shot. Okay, I'm going to use that next time. And so a lot of that, again, was kind of studying and saying, okay, how can I, uh, oh, okay, when Spielberg moves the camera low and then uh, jibs up slowly into someone's face, that's a hero shot. That's how we introduce somebody. I'm going to do that next time. Oh, wow, hey, that looks really cool and people like that. All right, mm-hmm. you know, production value, yeah. 
And, uh, and the same was writing to what you have. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason I do period pieces because I have old looking buildings and I have you know, a lot of stuff that takes place in the woods or near in the mountains because, man, that's gorgeous. We're in the Appalachian Mountains. Let's go film in there because that's beautiful. And right. I can't, you know, we're not green screening stuff. So uh, that's really a lot of it is what do we have around us and what looks great? And then, you know, what, what's that production value that we can just naturally kind of have uh, at our disposal? Mm-hmm. So by having a lot of turn of the century and um, Civil War era stuff here in the South, all right, you know, shooting in that time period makes right. it a little bit, a little bit better, and now, you know I can open the lens a little more, and I can shoot at a, a plantation house or a mansion, and you know it looks pretty impressive, right? Because it's, it's just down the street, and we know the guy, you know, like <laughs> right. it's really kind of shooting in our backyard a lot, so. right? Right. So the project that you're working on now, or did you just finish for History mm-hmm. Channel? Mm-hmm. Um, how did that project come about? Through blood, sweat, <laughs> and mostly tears. When we come back from the break, we'll hear the heart-wrenching tale of a filmmaker who experienced the dream of going to Hollywood and being courted by the industry's top studios, and how reality bit and it all came crashing down. I just wanted to take a moment to give thanks to one of the sponsors this season who has helped make this podcast continue, Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. If you're a filmmaker who shoots documentary-style films or corporate stories, one of the hardest things to do is actually find and develop the quote-unquote story that you want to tell. Well, that's where Muse comes in. Developed by still motion and enhanced with research about psychology and how and why the brain works, Muse is a process that helps you find and work out that story. The foundation of the framework are the four P's, people, plot, place, and purpose. Knowing those, combined with a structure of knowing the key words that will drive your story, is the secret behind Muse's magic. No pun intended. Go to learnstory.org to learn more about this patent-pending system that has been used by Stillmotion to essentially become the world-renowned and respected production company they are today. And if you use the offer code RADIO, you'll save $47 off lifetime access. We thank Muse Storytelling and Stillmotion for their support. Five years ago, almost to the month, I met with Brandon in person at a cafe in Atlanta to see what he was up to at the time. He and his producing partner and Whitestone chief composer, Nick Kirk, either had just returned from or were about to go on a trip to Hollywood to meet with various studios and pitch a feature film Whitestone was developing that the studios were excited to hear more about. I remember at the time being excited to share with Brandon my own personal successes and how I just finished shooting a bunch of client work back in Silicon Valley, and I was feeling so proud of myself. Then he said something to the effect about meeting with studios in Hollywood, and I swear it was like a Seinfeld episode, where I was George puffing my chest out with pride, and some young, uber-talented filmmaker just blew the wind out of my sails. It was kind of like that opening scene in Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, where the French farmer pulls out a pipe, and Christoph Waltz's character Hans Lana pulls out an even bigger pipe. Yeah, that was kind of like the picture. Now, to be clear, he didn't say it in a prideful or boastful kind of way. That's not Brandon's style at all. It was actually really kind of matter of fact. All the pipe comparison stuff was in my own head. But that's fodder for another episode. 
Well, in this next segment of this episode, we actually jumped to a Skype interview I had with Brandon about a month or so before that in-person interview you heard at the top of the show. And in that Skype call, he tells me whatever happened to that feature film project. It was right after I asked him about the beginnings of that History Channel shoot. When we were chatting via email about doing this call, you were saying, well, do you want to, well, we can set it up, but, you know, you're about to go into, like, the biggest shoot of your life, this thing for the History Channel, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, we could, you know, do this call after you do it, or we could do it before, and we can talk about the ensuing chaos, and I was like, I want to talk about the ensuing chaos. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, first of all, congratulations, what an awesome job and opportunity like like what thanks how did it happen like tell me what's the 401 on how this whole whole thing oh went down? it just uh you know it just happened overnight uh, it was real <laughs> simple and i just you know i asked and they said yes uh pretty awesome. simple easy easy movie making stuff is that how I, it always works it's overnight, yeah, of course right? that's like that's 101 guys right, right. if you don't do it uh, if you just ask people will give you money and and whatever you want um, actually, uh, six years ago, we started working on the Roanoke property, uh, like feature film, uh, the Roanoke story of the colonists. And it's kind of like, uh, I would say 1500s lost, um, pitched the history channel. They loved it, but it was too big to bite off. Well, it's too early. You said 1500s lost, like the TV show lost if it was in the 1500s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. the historical story of the Roanoke colonists, they land there and they just like the lost colony. They disappeared. It's America's oh, really? first colony. Yeah. Like America's first colony just disappeared. We have no idea to this day what happened to them. And it's been, you know, America's very first mystery. Um, and, and, you know, it's been a, you know, a really cool thing of speculation. I heard it in 11th grade and wow. in a history book, it's one sentence. And then you're like, oh, and then Jamestown. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's stuck in my brain about these people. And, uh, you know, so we uh, wrote a film about it um, and really just, you know, their, their stories and their struggles, which is cool. And then history channel, like totally dug on it, but uh, you know, they're trying to do more scripted, better stuff, you know? All right. Um, let me stop you for a second. Yeah. I want to slow you down. Two things. Right. One, how did you get to pitch it to History Channel? But two, like the last time we talked, like physically talked in person, mm-hmm. you know, Whitestone was in process of like your own feature film. It had like this sort of Appalachian Mountain spooky mystery vibe. Oh, yeah. Did, did, is that, did you guys do that? Are you no longer doing that? Did this, is it like on the back burner? Like what happened to that project? Oh, yeah. You want to go, you want to go uh, deep cut. All right. I'm, <laughs> I'm good with that. Uh, so, yeah, we wrote a film and we, well, we did a film called Blood of My Name, a mm-hmm. Southern Gothic Americana folklore musical. Right. Uh, got a bunch of attention. Got Wait, what did you call it? <laughs> a Southern Gothic folklore Americana musical. That it's, alone uh, is enough to sell it, Brandon. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it did its thing. You know, it was really, really cool, and um, it, it got us the attention that that ultimately led us to L.A. and got us an agent, and we got to go talk to the studios. And uh, the first lesson we learned is, crap, you better have a project to pitch. Uh, so you know, glad handing at, on the Warner Brothers lot's fantastic, <laughs> but unless you have something like you're actually like pitching, uh, it's a super waste of time. So we're like, pitching All right. blood in my name, or were you not pitching it? Nothing. We were just like, hey, everybody wants to meet you guys. And oh, like, cool. And so we did the, you know, the couch and water tour uh, around town. And <laughs> it was it was neat. You know, you're on Fox lot and you're on Warner Brothers lot. And then like, wow. But, you know, unless you're handing over something going, hey, I want to make this, you know, there's only so far the conversation can go. 
Um, so from there, we went back and said, well, crap, we got to make something, you know, that we're pitching. So lesson number right. one for us was always have something ready to just freaking pitch right on the right on the thing and develop. Yeah. So we developed this Roanoke property, went back out there and did the same tour, except this time we were pitching uh, Roanoke and, and another project, the Curse of Cain, which is the, probably the one you're talking about. No, oh, okay. Um, and uh, oh my gosh, everyone loved it, and everyone loves it, and everyone loves you, and everyone loves your work, and everyone loves—they <laughs> just love it so much. You just want to keep talking about it, and they love it. And they just love loving it. Um, and so after about a year of that garbage, uh, <laughs> going nowhere, and realizing, oh, this is like this is like the game. Uh, you know, they wanted to be the first one. They, everyone asked the same thing: Can you please send us your stuff first? Right. Uh, and you know, and we'd love to we'd love to work with you someday. We'd love to work with you someday. So right. after hearing, it's just, and it's almost like carbon copy, Apple C, Apple V, every single meeting. <laughs> um, uh, so it was like, okay, this this is not the way we're going. This totally sucks. Um, so we shelved that project, and then we went to work on Theophilus Brown, which was a uh, Appalachian, uh, um, it's an underground railroad action adventure. Oh, cool. Um, featuring Harriet Tubman, and this really, I mean, it was a really great project, and it had a lot of passion behind it. Um, so we spent... Uh, probably about a year developing that. We raised our own funding. Uh, we raised a good amount of our funding. We needed one large donor or investor, uh, donor, <laughs> assuming they don't get their money back. Uh, uh, <laughs> so wrong vernacular. Right. Uh, and one last investor to kind of finish out that thing. And we got it. And it was all handshakes and smiles and backpats. And, you know, we finished out the development. We did many drafts of the scripts. I've got a 50-page uh, um, director statement. Wow. And the day... The day it was time to finish the paperwork, sign sign the paper, we get an email, not even from the guy himself, but from his uh, secretary. Uh, XYZ guy is no longer interested in, in, in oh. investing in this project. Oh, my and, gosh. And that's the story, kids, of how a filmmaker <laughs> became unemployed in one email. Oh, um, my gosh. Which was the worst. And so even now we're was sitting like on it. Was that this year or last year? Uh, it was last February. Last February, wow. And uh, so that's how you, and I mean, we were on the rise. You know, we'd raised a good amount of money individually. And then, you know, and you have your last, you know, gap uh, investor. And man, that just took the wind out of our sails real hard because we were just, you know, prepping for that. I mean, there was no reason. I mean, paperwork was going. Everything was, all signs were and go. Like, no reason was given. It was just eh, no longer interested. It was, I mean, the reasons were, uh, I mean, yeah, in the email, no. And right. then when we pushed, it was very, um, you know, eh, yeah. on second thought kind of thing. Oh, even man. though even though it was like six or eight months of development, constant, oh, my gosh, this is great, guys. I can't wait. This is going to be great. So this, so this person's investment was like that crucial to this whole thing? Even though oh, absolutely, yeah. Money? Oh, wow. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we had, I mean, you know, you have to make these decisions as you're going and, you know, we had raised, uh, we had raised a good chunk and it was doable and we're like, okay, well, we can, we can go on this Who is this guy so we know not to ever go to him? Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Beep. (laughs) Mr. Beep, beep. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. uh, Yeah. Again, you don't, uh, I'm just trying to, I want to, oh, I'd love to tell you. I'd love to uh, put it out on the the Twitter sphere, but you know, I'm I'm a classy broad. Yeah, you are. You are. That's what I love about you, Brandon. Um, so, so you, but you, so you were saying like with one email, this how you become unemployed. Was this so? This was going to be like your job, like doing this. Oh yeah, feature. Film. Yeah, 
we I finished out like we stopped all other contracts, we stopped all corporate work, we stopped oh all gosh. other projects because this was and even out of the development we were we were getting paid and it was like okay this is gonna last us two years and and this is gonna be our job and we you know we had a business manager in and we I mean we we did it right I mean we had the yeah. whole SEC PPM blah 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 oh my gosh and. Yeah. So then all of a sudden, you know, that's it's done. And literally goes from where, you know, we're I mean, we were in pre pro. I mean, we weren't even like, you know, what if it was doing costume and casting stuff. And um, uh, and casting was a big issue. We didn't get the cast that they wanted, mm-hmm. um, even though, you know, I disagreed with with one of their cast members. Right. Um, but um, yeah. And, you know, at the end of that, uh, you know, at the end of that, it was uh, uh, nothing. It was just kind of like floating in the abyss. And uh, the second lesson I learned on that one uh, was, uh, and and just you know, to answer the first question, which was, you know, we had raised enough money we could have gone, mm-hmm. but we made the decision. You know what? We're going to go to that next level here. We have the opportunity. Let's let's go ahead and do it. And with our other investors, we had said, if if we don't raise the full amount, then we don't. You know, everything kind of kicks back. Um, you know, to protect their investment. Right. So th- that's what happened is when we didn't reach our full go, we kicked, we kicked back all the, uh, the other investors, which was not, uh, it was not an insignificant amount of money, but you know, we felt like that was a, that was the right thing to do. Um, the, Did um, you like feel like slitting your wrists at that time? I oh, mean, yeah. I, I say I'm, that. I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't want to make light of like suicide. I mean, I, I don't want people to get that impression. Well, just, no, yeah. I mean, I'm glad but, that our office is only two stories. Because <laughs> if it was any higher, I'd be, I'd be just jumping. Um, it was, no, it was bad. I mean, yeah, I, yeah not to, I won't even. Uh, I'm not even being hyperbolic. It was, you know, because then all of a sudden now you can't go forward and you can't go back. You know, we burned the ships and, uh, you know, felt like that was the, that was the thing to go for. Um, right. You know, and in hindsight. Um, I don't regret doing what we did. Obviously, you know, I would do it differently, but, yeah. you know, given the facts and the information and the experience I had, uh, you know, I would, I don't feel like we did dumb things. What would you do differently? Uh, I would probably, well, I would not trust, I mean, <laughs> I would not trust Mr. X. Right. Um, you know, I would probably, I mean, and really you, we probably should have gotten on the off ramp of, okay, we've raised, um, this smaller amount, let's keep it scaled back and give it a go. Um, mm-hmm. It would have been very difficult, and we probably would have not been able to do it full time. And so that was kind of a yeah a thing. But you know, we saw we saw the move, and it felt good. But you know, in hindsight, that's probably you know would have we would have gotten off on that exit um, uh, quicker. Um, you know, I want to I want to like percolate on this a little bit because I think yeah. it's, I, I think it's something that's so important for filmmakers particularly like if you want to be a director, because, you know, when you're a director and you've directed so many amazing films over the years, like when you're a director, you're like the captain of the ship, right? Like mm-hmm. if the ship goes down, you're going down with it. And yeah. everyone's putting their trust. Everyone's looking towards you to be the leader. And then you fake it best you can. Yeah, exactly. Like how, <laughs> I guess, how did, how do you feel like this experience shaped you? Not just as a director, but as a leader. If it, I mean, do you think it did? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'll go, I'll go full blown dark yeah. night of the soul here, because uh, you know, I, I, we have the first meeting. You know, Whitestone is a collective of people, and we've been working right. together for so many years. So, you know, it was the most exciting night to pull everyone together and say, guys, we've got it. Like we've done it. This I is bet. it. Let's go. And then to come back and have to do the same meeting 
except guys, we don't got it, and wow. we're it, we're coming to a a, a, a full stop. Uh, was I mean high highs and low lows, man. It was mm-hmm. you know, and and fortunately my team is is you know they're just nothing but uh, love and and passion, and you know it, we took a hit, but you know I personally went you know way down into the depths of oh man what am i doing with my life kind of thing dark night of the soul yeah you know nothing nothing to look forward there's no other projects can't go backwards because you know all those things are you know tied up and you know when you leave a client they get other turns out they get other uh, people to do the work uh so you know that you that's really not an option in a lot of ways so it was um you know it's a lot of now sitting in the rubble of it going now what do we do mm-hmm. um and you know i'll be honest it was a good few months of just i mean you'd have to drag me out of bed you know just to get up and face the day because uh, i'm just like i just am completely lost at sea um which you know the lesson there for us was you know what's the next thing what's the backup what's the what's the follow through and and you know that that plays into what we're doing even today um but in that during that time, you know, I, you know, I was getting hired to write screenplays. Uh, you know, um, I got to write a few feature films for for some people, which mm-hmm. was good. Get paid those, to do it. Yeah, oh, I was going to ask. Those were paid gigs. Yeah, yeah, they were paying mm-hmm. gigs to to you know keep the lights on and and keep things going. But I mean, it, it got pretty dire. Uh, uh, you know, where to the point where you know it's it's you know, we're trying to figure out how to make house payments. You know, trying yeah. to figure out how to get groceries. I mean, and everyone. I ne- never really experienced that because I had worked, you know, at a at a relatively uh, solid job, you know, and had a great contracts that were keeping flowing. I never had dropped to that depth. So, I mean, for sure, talking about leadership and things that I've learned. I mean, I I now I now know what the unemployment office looks like. You know, yeah. I know I know those things that I never never knew before, and new respect for. Uh, you know that I know what it's like to have to call and try to you know try to get money or have to accept money from friends and family when that feels very you know personally embarrassing. You don't want to have to do that, but hey, you know we gotta it's groceries, you know. Um, and so that was an incredibly humbling an experience, and and for certain. And Nick was right at my side. He, he's full time here too, so he went through it right next to me. And uh, you know, of course, you have to go. All right, are, is this it? Are we done? Did we just crash the thing? And you kind of have to decide, well, uh, you know, for me, it was like, well, I mean, what the heck else am I going to do? It's not like (laughs) I don't have a plan B. Um, So that kind of I was faced with that reality real fast. Yeah. Um, And just, okay, let's hold our breath and keep going and believe something is going to work and keep working, work twice as hard and, you know, figure this thing out. And uh, that's when History Channel called. How tragic. I'm jaded with my trade. That's magic. Believing my show rate. That's magic. They had kind of pinged us a few years ago when they saw Jack and the Dust Bowl. And they said, hey, you guys do like period piece, uh, you know, short films. And that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it is pretty nuts. Uh, and then, you know, we kind of, uh, and I pitched them Theophilus and they weren't interested. Um, and then, um, so we kind of parted ways for a while and then I kind of circled back and, you know, tested the waters and we came back in and said, Hey, what about this Roanoke thing we all like? And, uh, you know, they were like, ah, it's big. It's too big. We love it, but it's too big. And then I pitched this other thing called stone diaries and it was, it was a derivative of Roanoke and Mm -hmm. it's about the, uh, 1930s story of when, when, uh, when some professors found a rock that had the writing of what happened to the Roanoke colonists 
and um, and then a series of other rocks, and then there was a big hoax, and then a lot of things went really really bad. And it's a it's a it's a fascinating story, and it has it it ties to the Roanoke Colony, and they just absolutely loved it, and uh, so that's where we started. Um, now that sounds like a good part, like yay, and then and then we did it. Um, but <laughs> we we got we lived happily ever after. Yeah, and then like uh, they gave us the golden ticket, quote unquote, to do a development tape, which. Mm. You know, again, it was nothing money. And we're, des- again, I'm still, I'm destitute, you know, when that money comes in and, you know, we all have to look at each other and go, all right, do we, you know, do we live off this and do, you know, do a, a small demo tape or do we just double down roulette, you know, the, all on red and put it all in there. And we yeah. decided we're all in, let's go again. And team rallied and we made a demo tape that just blew them out of the water. Um, What's a demo tape? Oh, well, it's just a, yeah, it was more of a, um, like a, a, a sizzle reel. Basically, hey, this is the kind of show we'd like to to make and just kind of a, here's some of the vibe. I shot a scene from it, mm, kind of it. like, here's the here's what the show would look and feel like. Um, wrote up a bunch of treatments, wrote up a bunch of documents, and then began um, the runaround of uh, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that, and that's lasted a few months. And then, then we got the big green light, and that was in... Uh, about this time last year when we were greenlit. This time and, last year? Oh, yeah, my friend. <laughs> so that was so we did a lot of pitching and pitching and pitching. Yeah. And then we got the green light. So first we were like, hey, we got the golden ticket. Like, they're in. They're interested. Development. Sweet. Let's go. We're in development. And then we got the green light. Holy moly. We're, we're this freaking let's go. And then began the nightmare of uh, the valley of a thousand pitches. And so... <laughs> We're greenlit, yeah. You know, on on paper, uh, yet. I love these titles that you're coming up with. Oh, it's yeah, <laughs> it's well, you know, I've had a lot of alone time to think them up. Um, <laughs> you know, so we're greenlit, and then begins the the, the hundred. I mean, I, I'm 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 given to hyperbole often, but I would say at least a hundred uh, or more treatment pitches. Oh my god! Um, For the Roanoke story, though. For the Stone Diaries, the smaller one. Oh, the Stone Diaries. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's because they, they still like, okay, we'll give you like a test run. The Stone Diaries, we'll do it smaller. And then they were like, is it going to be a six series, six episode series, a mini series, a two night event? Um, and so we just, you know, is it a modern day thing? Is it a 1930s story? Is it, I mean, we went in circles. They brought in another company that's absolutely fantastic to help walk us through it, kind of partner together with. These guys were pros, and they, they've kind of taken a mentor figure with us. And we pitched. I mean, I mean, do it this way. Um, we started pitching in September, uh-huh. and and in about two hours, we're sh- and we're shooting this thing on Monday. And in two hours, I have another pitch meeting uh, for... where we're talking for this show. Oh my gosh! To talk about the script, and but you're it, shooting it, on Monday. I am shooting on Monday. Yes, sir. So you already have a script, though. Obviously, oh, you're shooting. oh yeah, but we've changed it a, a, a gajillion times, right. and so I have to. I, I mean, it's a fifty-page document that I've resubmitted an insane amount of time. But uh, the script you have is for Roanoke or Stone Diaries. Stone Diaries. It's a nineteen. So what we're shooting is a nineteen thirties story of those professors that found the rock that oh, explained okay. the mystery. Yeah, got it. And uh, but there's so much intrigue and hoaxes and backstabbing and, and extortion. It's a fantastic story in and of itself. And it it you know and it really points to the Roanoke story. And so if this were to work, the idea is that then we get to go then tell the story we really want to tell. Right. Um, 
so, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a year. I mean, to the day I actually have a little app called memoir and it, it, <laughs> it shows you pictures that you took like, Hey, a year ago today, you were doing this and it popped up this morning and it said, Hey, a year ago today, you were shooting the first demo reel. Uh, and I was like, man, that's just a year. And by the way, just, you know, we're not getting paid for that year. You know, like, it's not like, Hey, we got a full-time job. It's, right. it's, you're still pitching to get to the next stage of development. Uh, you know, even though it's, it's green lit, it's still evolving and, you know, they do a lot of reality TV stuff. And so it's, they, they understand a bit more that that's a little more fluid. Mm -hmm. Um, and ours is a bit more rigid. So that's kind of been some growing pains as we've kind of, uh, walked through it, but they've been great. I mean, you know, history channel, the guys that are, that are buying into this thing are all in, uh, the company that we're working with is Left Right. Um, they're a company in New York, and they're all in, and they're all supporting us and and me and as a director. And I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better scenario. Um, there's no villains in this story as of yet. Um, you know, it's been, but I'll tell you, I mean, it's been difficult, and uh, I, I did not, uh, I didn't expect that either. That it would take a year, a year for us to uh, just to get on set. Yeah. Um, so then, how? How were you surviving during that year? I mean, you were talking about, I mean, we're still, oh, you were doing like the writing gigs and then between Yeah, scraping. Or? I mean, I'm I'm out shooting, you know, I, I, at that point, you know, I'm pitching to History Channel for, for you know, a, a very large project. And it's like a one night big event, but I still have to go out on the weekends and shoot, you know, three, $400 videos because I just need to make cash. I mean, yeah. I can't. So that dichotomy was so weird, uh, you know, and I'm, which again, it was, it was, incredibly humbling but also i mean it was a good reset because now no matter how crappy the process can be just inherently uh man i'm just grateful to be working you know i'm yeah. grateful to be doing something that i wrote and you know i'm ep on the project whitestone's a production company of the project and it's what we want to do and that opportunity is a rare rare opportunity but uh but i know the cost you know i know the cost and 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 what it took to get us here and and having to go do i mean just gigs i mean yeah if you had something that was paying 300 bucks a day i'd be there you yeah. know and then and then i'd have to take a break to talk to history channel you know and pitch the big show and then come back you know it's it's a strange uh experience but you know i learned a lot i yeah. think it's so healthy to hear other filmmakers which is why i talk about it for myself and i yeah. love hearing you talk about it you know um it's so like that's more of like what our industry needs like not only the artistic inspiration that filmmakers like you provide, because like I've said before, your work is amazing, but that real down to earth, okay, brass tacks, what's it really like? What does it take if you want to like make a living doing this? One of the big things that pushed me through the hard times is people who I would consider successful mentors coming to me and going, yeah, I was there a few years ago. I was there five years ago. I know what that's like. Wow. And then to see that they had pulled it out and then and then to say, oh, and by the way, here's the pickle I'm in now. And I'm like, wow, that makes my thing look pathetic. That is in its own way, very encouraging. And that's and so for me, uh, that's why I try to get as open as possible, because I that value of knowing and again, I'm not, uh, you know, Whitestone is is uh, is cool and we're doing great stuff and we're not like the biggest, hottest thing in the world, mm -hmm. um, but we're hopefully can be, you know, inspire other people. But at the same time, the, yeah, it's that we would love to tell you how to 
how we shoot our movies and what camera, blah, blah, blah. But also, man, this is, this, this road is tough and it sucks and it's not easy. Um, and, and to hear that is in some, this commiseration is in some ways a, a form of, uh, uh, catharsisism. We just feel like, okay, well, so your stuff sucks and your life sucks for a while and it still kind of sucks now and the thing, okay, cool. Well, that's just the way it is then. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's then, then I'm not, I'm not in this alone sea. I'm not off in my own, uh, island and just trying to, to survive. There's actually a ton of people in the same spot and there's a, there's some kind of comfort in that and to go, um, you know, there's a way to, they pulled it out and pulled, pulled it off. And, and sometimes they crashed and burned and restarted. And you know what, there's going to be, there's going to be more, there's going to be tomorrow and there's going to be, keep at it. And really that's the, not, not accepting failure as a sign that this isn't meant to be. Mm -hmm. And that's a big hard thing of, of, you know, when you get real hard failure, go, well, I guess we, we weren't ever meant to do this. And it's kind of, you know, that's not, no, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe, but at the same point, like, I don't buy that. Like, let's double down and then keep doubling down and until we can't possibly do it anymore. And, uh, I don't know where that line is and I hope I never find it, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's that kind of process of going and again, looking at the stories of, of Disney and bankruptcy and all these guys and like, you know, it's the short sentences and the long years um, that that uh, and people will then look at you and go, oh, yeah, man, you, you're cool, man. You figured it out and uh, made a joke earlier of saying, yeah, we just asked History Channel and we got to do the show. But and but people will say, oh, you guys were cranking along. And then one day you got a thing approved and <laughs> you guys were on TV. Yay. And it's like, sure, <laughs> that's the, that's how the story went. Um, and then now you're on your way and it's like, uh, yeah, it helps a little bit, but we're not going to, and again, that, that really cuts in hmm. to your ability to be prideful. I, mean, I can't be like, we're so awesome. It's, wow, I just, I'm so glad to be here. I'm super glad to be doing this and I got to just work harder to figure out what the next thing is and keep going and, and know that getting here while the tenacity mattered. I mean, a lot of people had to be involved to help and a lot of people had to be involved to, to believe it's not just me out here doing stuff. It's a lot of a lot of people, friends, family, mentors. Um, it takes a lot. And so I, I hope that is encouraging and not uh, depressing to people. And I find it encouraging when I hear how horror stories of other people that I, I respect go, oh, yeah, I, uh, I've had that and, and even worse. I go, okay, well, at least I'm in good company. Gentlemen, let me take the stage and teach you a thing or two. Uh, Joseph Campbell said was if you're if you're walking down that your path of life and there's no obstacles and it's a bright sunny day and it's just everything's going s smoothly uh, you're on someone else's path <laughs> you're on the wrong path because uh, it should not be it, it is not that way and uh, I think that's that's so true uh, and I, I find it truer uh, every day in that hero's journey. And we, we should, if we believe our own stories <laughs> that we tell, we should be able to believe in redemption and, and the underdog and, and being able to persevere. That's the movies we love. And that's, that's why we love them, because we like to think that given in that kind of situation, we could do the same. We mm -hmm. could pull it out. And I think that's why we watch those things and go, maybe I have it in me too. Uh, and the only way to know is to go through this stuff. 
Whitestone's film, That's Magic, is about a magician who's lost his faith in what he does, the circumstances that cause that faith crisis, and now he comes back to believe. I see Brandon's journey as a filmmaker a similar parallel. Brandon hit a really hard time in his career after that whole feature film debacle, and he learned some valuable lessons, lessons every professional creative would be wise to heed. The path of a creative is not for the weak of heart but it is one that is worthy and wonderful and extremely fulfilling. So, my fellow filmmaking friends, may Brandon and his story inspire all of you artists and artisans out there to know that what you do is magic. Don't give up. And if you do hit hard times, know that there is light on the other side. All you have to do is believe. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me. Chris Huslidge is the show's co-producer. Music for this episode was curated from Free Music Archive, but much of it was music from That's Magic, music and lyrics by Nicholas Kirk, courtesy of Whitestone Motion Pictures. All rights reserved. Don't forget to go to learnstory.org and use the offer code RADIO to get your $47 off lifetime access to Still Motion's Muse. And if this episode inspired or moved you, share it with a friend. I have no doubt you know someone who needs to hear this message. And share your thoughts about this and podcast in general on iTunes by leaving us a rating and review. That would be so very helpful. You can follow me on Twitter at FM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Believe. For the geeks out there, where did you shoot it on? Shot on the Red uh, Ep- no, Epic on the new Dragon sensor. Oh, thing, really? Which was, usually I'm not impressed with uh, the tech stuff. You know? Yeah. So, and this is working with Triple Horse. They have uh, the two Red Epics. And we've shot on Reddit for a while now. Um, you know, nothing against Alexa. I love the, absolutely love the sexy Alexa. But, mm-hmm. you know, I figure if the Red Epic was good enough for Mr. Jackson, right. it's good enough for me. Um at the same point, uh, we got the that would dragon. be Peter Jackson that for those listening. Be Peter Jackson. <laughs> um, the uh, the the dragon sensor kind of blew my mind. The really? low light, yeah, the the low light type stuff uh, to me finally actually looked like the stuff they've been promising forever. You mm-hmm. know, like they did this whole like demo years ago of like uh, the match in a dark room. Right. Like, that's crap. I've never I've never been able to do that. That's, right. that's a lie. I don't know how they did that. Um, but this one, it was, uh, it was really versatile. You shot it? at like, you know, dusk, the darkest dusk. And I bumped the ISO way higher than I normally would. And man, it just looked pristine.